university rankings, impact factors, these have these all have implications for people's jobs, their careers, and their psychological health. There is a cost and there are side effects to these things. There are implications for people, you know, but so when someone says you need an impact factor of 2.0 or higher to get tenure, uh, it's, I have to smile. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University. Well, this is uh, this is part two of our episode with uh, with Nathan Hall, and haven't we had a great response from from part one? And, and thank you to all the people who, who who pointed out that this also happened to be the episode that we both spoke the least. <laughs> we got a fair we got a fair bit of that as well. Yeah, how how many people said that to you, Daniel? I really like this episode because you didn't talk. You didn't. You didn't thanks, talk much. I got, I got that from so a few much. People. people committed to listening to our voices on the internet. <laughs> what a uh, what a what a lovely compliment to receive. But uh, no, we we did get a lot of nice things said to us um, over Twitter and Facebook, um, and a lot and, of news and some and some horrible things. Really. Ah, yeah. Well, mainly about you, but you know, there's only so much time. <laughs> on, 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 the, the dark web doesn't count, James. I know, I know you. you oh, don't, don't you start with dark web. People have ruined that word because it's largely populated with. Uh, let's not even go there. No, I'm trying to give the. I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm cheering myself up by giving the the, the third Hertzy a hug here, but third, no one can see that. Third Hertzy. We will get a photo of the third Hertzy. Um, but Hang on, um, let's see if let's see if we can capture a a, a complaint. These are usually pretty easy because there's a lot of complaining done here. There it is. There it is. The, the, it's a tiny the one. Well, it's, we, it's, um, hot. it's hot, man. He's in a bad mood. Everyone's in a bad mood. We, um, we, we're going to get to part two of our episode with Nathan very soon. But, but, but before we get there, we're going to answer some listener questions that, we have, um, that we've gotten in to the show. And uh, the first one is from uh, Paul Lester. Uh, 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 uh. First things first, Daniel. Yes. Uh, have we prepared answers to these questions? No. <laughs> this is um. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. These these it's are a very valuable distinction, sir. Sometimes we get listener questions like, mm, "That is the sage question. We should consider this at great length." Hmm. Or sometimes we get listener questions, and I don't know what they are. <laughs> it's the closest thing we're going to have to um to completely live uh, live podcasting. But let, let's jump into it for the first question. This one is from Paul Lester, who was at Paul Lester forty on Twitter, and he asks, uh, "Any advice that yourself and James could provide regarding grant applications would be excellent. Perhaps a bit of context oh. for early career researchers in terms of how many applications you both submitted before being successful." Um, if you could outline how much this was for and anything in particular you thought was a strength of these applications. Uh, I think listeners may be interested in developing greater awareness of competition for a given application and knowing how to implement particular strategies that might help set your application apart. Uh, it oh, seems- Paul. Yeah. Oh, uh, Paul, give me 10 minutes on this one. It's a good one. You're and a um, monster. A few, a few more sentences. Um, it seems as though we've given plenty of, of advice from funding bo- bodies about what they're looking for from individual applicants, whereas being able to identify how often your application better meets the funding objectives than those submitted by other groups is a much harder criteria to satisfy. 
I think uh, if people, uh, yeah. yeah, okay, that's like that's like uh, six people more senior than us on a panel <laughs> for two hours with attendant coffee kind of question. So why don't we do it like this? Why don't you confine yourself to three pieces of advice, and we'll do them in uh, in sequence: one, one, two, two, three, three. Okay. Um, and redact anything that you were going to say that overlaps because this is not enough time to do this question justice. That's a very good question. I mean, they refer to in American academical culture, they refer to something that is occasionally called grantsmanship. Grantsmanship. Which is a, is just a very tortured word and I don't know if there's space in it for grant womansmanship. I don't even know. <laughs> grant's personship. Yeah, I, I, it, it, I, it, it's, it's insufficiently discussed. I mean, this is the center of a lot of people's academic life, is perpetual search like a, like a starving rat in a dumpster behind a terrible restaurant, a perpetual search for something that allows you to exist, sorting through moraines of garbage and rejection. But, you know, people talk about papers all the time. Well, we submitted this, this is pre-printed, this is accepted. But the actual nuts and bolts of this are not discussed in a... They're not discussed openly uh, for a variety of reasons. I'm going to start with saying this. And one of the, one of the, the things is because... Um, to some extent, there's a flexible amount of space in journals. It's not a. It's not like a, it's not some kind of zero sum game where you're like, if I get the journal article, you do not get the journal article, and you wish success for other people. You hope that they get to publish in the outlets that they'd prefer for whatever spurious reason they might have a preference. But when it comes to grants, if you're collectively applying for money, there's only so much money. So people have a tendency not to be open about, I know exactly where, I know exactly where resources can be obtained on a multi-year level. So there is a lot less discussion of how do you, how do you navigate this process successfully? And if Paul, uh, who's asked a very, very good question, well, that should much be obvious by now, um, is lacking information, it's probably because a lot of the time the information isn't there. It becomes specific to individual grant schemes, individual career stages, uh, and how individual people uh, how individual people uh, approach the idea that they need to write a very complicated document where you you either have a lot of the time that there's there's no such thing as half points with grants. It's this odd system. Uh, in the from from the kind of the 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 bird's eye view, right? The kind of the the, the GoPro fisheye lens from a drone kind of view. Uh, you either get everything you ask for, or absolutely nothing. Very rarely do they say, "Oh, so you need that much money to do this project?" Well, we, we like you, and uh, I, I saw a picture of your smile in the newspaper. So here, have sixty percent, so we can spread the money around. Well, I mean, that just cripples projects completely. So. There can be a big hole about this where the information should be, especially if you're by yourself at an early career stage, sort of postdoc, junior faculty, and you're supposed to be working on your own shit, or you're writing your first fellow ap fellowship application to become independent. It's hard to navigate, and there's only so much time that you can invest in things that are not going to pay off 
on a kind of a, you know, like amortized cost over time sort of level? How much time do you invest in these individual things? And that's why there's so much discussion that we're not going to be able to go into. And a lot of the stuff we're not familiar with. Have you ever written a massive program grant, Daniel? Not only, only personal grants, not, not, not a program grant. Oh, no, I've, I've, I've done, done a big project grant. Right. How did that go? Went, went well. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's why everyone. That's why everyone's sick of you. All right. Three <laughs> was, no, but it, I, I was incredibly in in that context. I was in, in, incredibly lucky. I think because, um, but I also think it was it was a consequence. Well, look, you you're incredibly lucky. You haven't been arrested on site. <laughs> but for this for this particular one, um, I almost applied for this on on a on a whim um, because it was a bit left of center. And I think that was to my advantage because um, lo- looking at the rest of the successful applicants, none of the other ones were actually looking at any behavioral stuff or in psychiatry. It was a grant looking at endocrinology in um, in general. And um, I think that because uh, uh, one of Paul's things that he asked is how do you stand out? And well, that's one clear way you can stand out is going for, for schemes that aren't necessarily obvious. Um, but I also think maybe it's a European thing, but I think- it's not the worst, and I've seen this bandied around a bit, that you actually email successful applicants going, hey, would you mind sharing application? Now, I think this only is going to work- Sorry, are you transitioning into your first piece of advice, or are you just talking into the middle distance? I, I, I'm, I'm transitioning a little, a little bit into the advice, but th- this is more about what you were saying about how well, we don't actually know what's going on. But I think um, that if you actually- in th- These successful grant lists or successful grantees are public, and you can actually find out who who's won what grant- and I think you can actually, uh, I've seen this advice banded around that you can actually email people going, hey, would you mind sharing your successful grant application? Now, this I think will only work for one shot grants as in grants that you can only win at one stage in your career. If this is sort of a, a yearly project thing where everyone's competing for, then the chances of that happening are pretty slim. But if this is a, a, a one shot grant, um, then I think your chances of actually having people sharing successful applications um, is, is quite high now. That being said, um, we've heard plenty of stories of people who submit the same. Uh, I, I think it, this is almost a, it's a weird genre of the of the journal sting, where I saw a paper where people resubmitted. I don't know the, the, the ethics around that, but they resubmitted a paper um, that a journal accepted about ten years ago. The exact same paper to a journal for the editor to go. Sorry, this isn't relevant to our journal's interests. Des reject. Yeah. So that in in a weird way, I mean that that might reflect changing norms over time, but. In a way that kind of demonstrates how arbitrary the success of journal papers and grants are. You may submit the same grant even from a prior successful one, but it might not necessarily help you. But at least this gives you a good idea of what sort of things are successful. So, I think unless it's- uh, if it's a one-shot grant, you could actually consider this idea of just emailing people and asking them for their grant applications. Okay. I don't think that's going to work if you're emailing people that you don't know. So I'm going to really? count well, your first piece of, your first piece of advice is talk to, uh, talk to people who have publicly got, um, publicly had success with this, the relevant scheme. So Try, you can see o- what it is. Obviously, you'll have more chance if you speak to people within your own institution. Um, yeah, or that- people that you know personally, etc., etc., etc. However, this is—I think—that's a very low percentage kind of offer. So a lot of people are very selective/slash secretive about text like that. Mm. Um, just because, I mean, if you if you think data hoarding and kind of like pr- protecting of protecting of strategic resources is bad within other areas of 
doing science for money. It's infinitely more intense when it comes to grant-related stuff. So, the, yeah, seeing, seeing something like that as a template is a huge help. And it takes either very, very decent or very open or very sort of uninvested people who will provide you with a text like that in the first instance. Um, it's also probably not a lot of people who are applying for something totally out of the cold. You know, there's an awful lot of people in any individual scheme who are applying for something with uh, lots of good prior knowledge of what they're doing. So plenty of people who, who know what they're doing are coming in cold all the time without any kind of guidance. But to start off with, yeah, um, having the template, even like things as specific as the language used or what exactly this question means. Because a lot of the questions, especially if you've got multiple questions in a grant, fill this section out, fill this section out. Some of it's nebulous as fuck, right? And you look at it and think, how is that necessarily different? to How are my strategic outcomes different to my goals in this case? Like, Oh, okay. Um, I try. I better put words in order to address those questions, which feel utterly connected. Um, so, a template of something that worked is the only good information you're going to get. Mm. Okay, so that's that counts as um that counts as some kind of mutual advice. Oh, we're just going to keep doing things till we run out of time. Maybe this number shit's not going to work. <laughs> okay, here's 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 the second part. Every grant at every individual funding body has a relevant program officer. And the, the relevant program officer is a person probably within something connected to your collective field of study or endeavor, right? It's someone who, uh, someone who, who works for the organization that is involved and the, the, the roles differ. We won't, we won't get into like the specific guts of what they do. But if you're trying to determine a fit of something, the person who can tell you and the person who in an ideal world would know that you're going to apply uh, how to focus the whole thing, what is the topic that's specifically of interest right now is the program officer or some relevant grant officer. There's nothing wrong with finding out who these people are and asking them if your specific topic of interest is their specific topic of interest. If they've got a really specific remit and you write something that doesn't fit it, they're going to go, well, we're not interested in that. Now, that's really difficult to determine unless someone actually tells you. Now, that's kind of their job. That's their role within that organization. If you have a conversation with one of these people, they will specifically say, here's what might be interesting in your idea. Now, that might be terrible advice. That might be something that you're really interested in yourself. But trying to figure out on a heuristic personal level with someone who is in the relevant position of how well the work that you want to do fits with the work that they want to fund is technically saving everyone time. Mm. That could be a quick email. And a lot of a lot of these people are very open. They're very experienced people who see a ton of good and bad and everything in between applications. And they don't want to have their time with. The last thing you want to do is prepare something that just doesn't fit, that just doesn't fit the criteria because that's definitely a waste of time because they'll just go, this isn't strictly relevant or this isn't what we're interested in right now, and then they'll forget all about it. Now, that's something that could have been prevented and you could have saved their time and your time. 
That's a by win-win. making sure what you're sending is appropriate. Now, do not do that 36 hours before <laughs> the grant is due at like 5 p.m. on the last Tuesday in the month or some shit like that. This is you, and it's not. They're not. They're not going to help you. They're not going to go. Oh yeah, here's the secret source, and you put in will definitely fund you. That's some nepotistic bullshit. What they will tell you is whether or not it's relevant. So, like from first wash, what will happen when it gets in front of reviewers? What will happen when it's assessed by a, a committee of people as to whether or not the grant should even be read and scored? Um, depending on whether or not the system works like that. Okay, that's my that's my next piece of advice. You do one. Um, my one's actually a little bit similar to that. And I think when you actually look at your grant application at a more macro level, I think you should really be doing is it's really boiled down to the fact that your project, firstly, solves a problem. Uh, secondly, that you're the best person to do this. And third, that this should have this project should have begun yesterday. Um, when I say solves a problem, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, uh, new, new treatment for cancer or whatever. I'm talking about that basically the grant application or, or the, 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 the granting body wants has has a larger remit for funding research or for uh, funding specific projects, um, be it whether they're a private foundation or a government um, a government entity. So you actually need to be the best person to to solve their problem. For are we actually getting a better understanding for these things? Um, that, that doesn't mean that you actually explicitly say these things in the start of your application, but you need to actually think about through this entire thing for your application. If you're the sort of person that um, has a history of not actually fulfilling their obligations for grant applications, then you have a likely history of not doing that in the future and they're less likely to fund you because you're not solving their problem of actually being a responsible person with their money. Yeah? You're, yeah, you- that's, not, that's not really an early career answer. Okay, but- okay, but, like but, How can you- You can definitely outstay your welcome with people who feel like you don't fulfill your obligations. I have yeah, heard of that happening. But, I mean, let, let's look at other things know, when it comes to- uh, Obviously, they want to see someone some, who has some, somewhat- Some people in a room will look at your record and go, no, you don't You don't fulfill your obligations. Up a river, down a creek with you. Mm, yeah, but I mean, uh, in the same sort of way, they, you might, they might actually look at your publication track record and for, for, for that particular standard, it's not up to snuff. So, if you're the sort of person that um, isn't isn't producing enough, then, then they might actually, or isn't producing quality enough research, then they might think, well, we're not, we're less likely to give this person um, some some money because um, we don't have any evidence at the moment that they're actually going to be producing any outcomes for our money. But of course, that goes hand in hand with the actual project idea. Now, when it comes to you being the right person, um, you, chances are there's going to be a lot of people with the same idea. So you need, you need to demonstrate that you are the right person and you are part of the right team, or you're partnering. With the right team that um, complements your weaknesses, because we can't we can't do everything. There's no such thing as a as a full stack researcher who can sort of solve these problems. You need to work with people. Um, and if you demonstrate oh, an application, like if you demonstrate an application that yeah, um, these are these other people that I'm going to be working with who have expertise in X Y Z, then that um, that's really strong. And once again, that comes back to this idea going that you are you are going to be a good steward of the research money that you're getting. Um, and finally, this idea of th- this is the sort of thing that needs to be done yesterday. Because someone might look at this going, yeah, this is a good application, but, you know, whatever. As we know, about a third of all applications actually are fundable, so to speak, but only mm. maybe 10% actually get funded. So, this idea yeah. that there's this urgency. That now, this just has- happened to us. Had some really, really good ah. reviews. No problems. Good, good and very goods all across the board. Very, very large grant that I was a fairly central participant in writing um very five reviewers very positive for the most part um some 
sensible suggestions to improve. Great scores, no money. Bummer. That uh, sucks. Yeah. This is it's yeah, and okay. Look, let me add something to that, and we'll get to the next question, which hopefully yeah. is less technical. Good, good job trying to fit this into ten minutes, dickhead. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, wanker in a car. Um, geez, that was loud. Why can't we cancel loud things? Okay. Um, final final piece of advice to fit together with all this is that the, one of the first things that you are going to have to do, as you've just said, is assemble a team of people who are all collectively interested in doing an idea. Um, trying to address something through a structural research program that you all collectively fund. Now, when it comes to the vagaries of how do we get the budget together, what do we do, who spends time doing what, etc., you need as much time as possible to try and iron those things out. If you ever tried to get six senior people to all review something all at the same time, it is a shit show. When you start writing grants, you will invariably be collaborating with people who are more senior than you, who have more demands on their time, or who feel like they're more important and don't want to participate past a certain level. They feel like you need them rather than the other way around. So you need to know the dates of things when they're released, when they're open and available to be done. Good advice. You can't get out in front of a good answer to a question and really get all of the elements of something like this coordinated. And it's, if it's a big grant, there's a lot of shit. Like the budget section alone for some of these things that might need to be signed off individually by the uh, financial what's-his-name departments of every participating university. And in a big enough grant, that can be four, five, six more institutions, right? So you need to find the places where these things are aggregated or described on the internet and you need to know when they're ready to go now one of the things that seriously helps with this and something that i'm hugely in favor of is grants being organized in a tiered system where you submit a letter of intent in the first instance a very short document with a very brief description of what's going to be going on and they will assess that for fit till maybe somewhere between sort of uh one in ten and one in two people who submit a vague high-level description of what they want to write a grant about um, and they'll tell you whether or not that works for them, whether or not they're interested. And at that point in time, you write a full grant. I love this system. Really, I love this system because it saves everyone a whole lot of time. You could write a good letter letter of intent on and off in... A week, probably, sure. if you've got a, and that's not a, like something working in full time. Good luck writing a full scale uh, program grant in anything less than about two months. And some of those two months will be sort of 10 to 12 hour days of total bullshit that needs to go in because it's part of the legal process of doing, uh, doing the back end work of how it all fits together. At the end of the day, a lot of the time you are dealing with millions of dollars in public money. This is not something where you just sort of wave your hands and go, yeah, give us cash. So if things are recurring schemes, you need to know when they recur. Um, you may need to publish things or work on topics in advance of what you need to write to be able to include the information that says, yes, we know actually what we're doing. This is very, very common in Australia. I don't know. I've not done uh, – I've only been a sort of a partial participant on two full-size NIH grants here, uh, both of which are under consideration as far as I'm aware rather than like successful or not. And man, um, 
you need to be uh, you need to be including how it might work, like the structure, how it might work, the work that you've already done, the pilot data that you've got needs to be in the application itself, um, as opposed to here's all these things we might do. Mm. You can see in a in a like if you try to demonstrate the fact that you can do it in the first place, you need to be out in front of that and. Yeah, I, I can't remember ever seeing a successful grant body of text that doesn't have like, here's the figure of this is how we did it to start with. Yeah. This is the key result from X, Y, Z. People, it's just a huge body of text describing what you might do, no matter if it's a good idea or not. It represents risk to the people who are making these sort of vicious managerial decisions about what can or can't be done. Mm. From their perspective, they're trying to minimize risk. And obviously that yeah. has big big implications for what's going to happen in what's going to happen in the the, the future uh, so maybe they don't fund high-risk research maybe they don't fund things that people can't get out in front of and that seriously affects people's ability to do cool transformative shit hmm. that's that a happens other discussion as, that that happens as well yeah um I think that's about enough on that. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll jump to the next. Just question. so we've got enough, just so we have enough time to get to the other one, because look, there's, uh, there's going to. I'm already coming up with things that a are now unsaid. Yeah, maybe yep. we can uh, swing back to this in another episode. But okay, question two. Sorry, Paul. Maybe maybe we could find someone who is a, a grand officer. Maybe people would find this useful. Maybe we can find someone who's either a grand officer or who has serious heavy duty success and getting multiple things funded over time from multiple different outlets, not just some person who can always keep that R01 turning over because they're doing something that's allegedly interesting, but someone who's had widespread success in, yeah, we can probably find someone like that. Um, whether or not they're willing to talk about all the secret sauce they use to not get sent to the poorhouse is another matter entirely. <laughs> so that might be a hard person to find, but maybe we'll have a go if it's useful to people. We'll give it a go. All right, question two. This mm. is from Lee Greathouse, who is at Cancer Microbes on Twitter. Uh, what a super name, Lee Greathouse. It's, it's great. Okay, here's, here is Lee's question. I would, like to strongly Greathouse. I would like to strongly advocate for a discussion on data cleaning. I like. I feel like this only gets a brief mention in most stats classes. Even in the four sections I took in my Masters of Public Health was only covered in one lecture. I've looked everywhere for a detailed SOP or guideline, but to no avail. I keep getting told it's field specific, but this just this does not cut it for me. I and others, I'm sure, have been tripped up so many times by missing a critical outlier, missing key visualizations, etc. There are so many stories of bad data being used in huge studies. No wonder replication is tough. James Heathers, we have a lot of ideas when it comes to data cleaning, but what do you think about this? Oh, man. Look, okay, first on first principles, this is something that anyone who works in uh, AI, machine learning, big data, large behavioral experiments will always, always, always tell you. I spend more time, sometimes significantly more time, cleaning and structuring data than I do in analysis. Sometimes analysis that you you want to do is totally determined, is totally predetermined and you already know how to do it in the first place. What you spend most of your time doing is putting numbers in order so the analysis can be deployed in the first instance. Now, this is not to this is not a cool thing to talk about. This does not enter into the oh hi, clever people on the internet. Hi, I wrote a blog and it's on some crazy esoteric bullshit you've never heard of. And here's the code, and this is all very cool. Ha, it's a million miles removed from I have a million lines of dog shit and I need to turn it into a million lines of something that's properly machine readable. And from from there we will proceed to glory. 
So this is a good goddamn question. Okay, I think the first thing that if you're trying to approach this from scratch, the first thing that you need to do is find someone in this whole kind of data carpentry, software carpentry kind of movement or the tidyverse people, right? And I think that the, if you could go to a data carpentry workshop, that would be- They're everywhere. That would be- yeah. Yeah, that that's that's and that's all about I mean that's a great name because it's not a sort of there's no linguistic crossover with anything else as it exists. That's a super fucking name, data carpentry. And it, it is perfectly descriptive of all the skills that you actually need to do. Not everyone is like putting the last coat of polish on the beautiful chair. A lot of people are hacking the fucking logs in mm. half. You know? You're doing the rough sanding, making sure the joining fits, et cetera, et cetera, trying to get precision on the cuts. And so all of that back-end stuff is what they try to formalize and teach. As far as external resources, like what can I go and read about how to clear all this up? And you go, oh, it's all, it's, it's all uh, field-specific, so no one's actually going to no tell me. Um. The place I would look to see it done right, see if there's people that you trust who are actually releasing data with papers, right? People who are releasing their data are releasing the data cleaned up the way they like. So for any individual decision, hopefully you can find someone who's already had to make that decision and ask them specifically, I mean, outliers. Find a paper where it's congruent ask them what rule they used and what the justification was. Now, they may not be able to tell you, but if it's a critical kind of question, then it's worth, it's worth trying to chase down. And mm. that is also the kind, of, that is the kind of question that people have a tendency to answer. Anything where they feel like they're helping and it doesn't cost them anything and, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable question to ask someone who works in that kind of environment. I think- um, as, as, are there central resources? I don't think there's any like great big text. The big guide to having your data not be a bag of flaming <laughs> shit. I don't think that book necessarily exists kind of across contexts. What do you but, think? Yeah, I, I think data commentary is, is a really good sort of centralized approach to, to doing this. Um, I think nowadays now that um, we have these big public, public data sets, we can actually see people's thought processes and how people approach outliers is actually now really transparent. There's a really good paper um, that uh, I read a few weeks ago that I'm going to post to. And basically, it was using a, a big public data set and all the code was there. And um, you could just you could run the entire thing and you can get all the figures, all the statistics, um, way you go. And it was amazing. But then, of course, because it's public data and data is messy, you can actually see how they went about doing their analysis. Um, and you can see how they actually chose the outliers. But I think- uh, there are two approaches when it comes to data cleaning and outlier analysis. Um, you either need to need to pre-specify your approach. Um, maybe that, that there's a certain threshold that you have for removing outliers, um, or you need to demonstrate that your actual analysis is robust to outliers. Yeah. How many times have we seen a, a paper? Uh, the amount of times that I've actually been reviewing a paper and they're, they're reporting a correlation, and I'm like, um, yeah. Do you do you want to do you want to send us the scatter plot? Revision one. Send us the scatter plot. Aha. Here we go. Two two massive fat outliers. You you wouldn't mind uh, running that analysis uh, without those outliers. Run it. Nothing. Squat. Uh, effect completely goes away. And and then they're just you know pouring together some sort of 
justification for, for for why they should include those outliers. But you need to demonstrate that um, that your analysis is actually robust to these outliers if you haven't actually had a pre-specified plan for outlier analysis. And I think it, it, in some regards, when it comes to outlier outlier analysis, you you may not like the answer, but I think it actually is specific from field to field. And that's why pre-specifying what your approach is going to be um, is actually a good way of doing it. Or showing that is actually robust. Um, there is actually a whole field um, by Rand, kind of, you know, spearheaded or started off at least from Rand Wilcox of robust statistics where you can actually do frequentist top analysis, but with a with 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 a twist, and you can actually demonstrate um, for for more common statistical analysis like correlations, t tests, and others that your results are actually um, uh, robust to outliers. Um, so that's that's one approach of doing it. Um, but um, yeah, data carpentry. Google it. Um, they tend to have um, in most major cities. Um, they tend to have um, classes uh, a few times a year, and it, it is a uh, it is a really good resource. Cool. Well, look at us knowing the answers to things. <laughs> I feel I feel almost I feel almost useful. Almost, almost. Yeah. Oh, speaking of, uh, I was actually um, this is looking at crowdsource something. Um, uh, a guy that I don't think a lot of listeners would know is a, a another dude at Northeastern called Joseph Fredman. He got in touch the other day. They're having a podcasting conference in November. Mm. Um, and it's in, uh, it's in Boston. Mm. Uh, I think it's based at Harvard. Um, and he said, do you want to speak? Like I don't speak all the time for, for nothing. Now, what we didn't agree on, what we didn't agree on is a specific topic. So I'm presuming this is going to be recorded elsewhere. So seeing as we've got a goddamn podcast, which is the reason that I would be invited to do this in the first place. What do you people think would be a good 20-minute approximate topic for a talk on podcasting? I have some ideas, but I don't listen to our podcast. i got an odd relationship with it because I'm up it. I'm around and through it. You see what I mean? So... Considering the fact that it will be turned into a resource and people are there probably going to hear it at some point, what do our listeners think? Please would be a good would be a good podcast topic for a talk. Let- I probably have to. I probably have to be nice, nice ish, as nice as I'm capable of. Um, but you know, I don't often talk about this in the absence of you. And your hairy little face. <laughs> so, yeah. Suggestions, suggestions, uh, welcome. Serious suggestions, welcome. If there's anything about cats, it's going to be tempting, but vetoed. Um, not, not by me, but whoever's organizing. We, we, we have a disproportionate amount of listeners who have cats in their profile, which is good. Yeah, I Thanks. hope it's. I, I hope it's because we've preferentially recruited them. I, I think so. Um, Anyway, this conference thing, if you're in Boston at the time, um, it's, it's called Sound Education, um, and there's a soundeducation.fm uh, website for it, show notes for that. Um, and there's a lot of people who are from the kind of audio media 
community from everywhere. There's an awful lot of people involved. This is a much I didn't know much about it to start with, and then I looked it up and I go, wow, they've got an awful lot of people who are coming to a uh, an awful lot of people who are coming to be involved with this. So, so the podcast that I've heard of, people who are obviously in networks that I don't know. There's lots and lots of um. There's lots and lots of crazy shit. Uh, there's a guy, one of the guys from behind the uh, partially examined life. Wow. Um, uh, some of the uh, the the history podcast, uh, Dan Carlin, the hardcore history. Oh, guy. Oh, the podcast is amazing. Is, um, Have you heard that one? Yeah. Yes, of course. It is such um, a good podcast. How long are the episodes? Three hours. Do you think we have long podcast listeners? Check out Dan Carlin's oh, he, three three and a half hours yeah. epics and on. There's so there's so much detail. This is at some point in time you stop being two wankers in a room and you start having like produced audio and do you know you know, <laughs> what you know, you know what I mean? Two, have, two wankers in a room. <laughs> yeah, so that I think that name's probably it's taken. Probably that, taken. It's also very very risky. Google uh, from yeah. work as well. Um, so ah, uh, so the the. The dangerous history guy. A lot of people who have some like radio production, uh, radio production sort of backgrounds. Uh, yeah, I don't even. I, I obviously I don't know seventy five percent of the people, but they all have a they all have this kind of background, and it's a very interesting, very interesting thing to be involved with because I this this has only a partial relationship to kind of my professional life obviously the 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 topics cross over but i don't go to work and people say oh that was an interesting podcast it's they kind of have a a separation of um there's a separation um so yeah i'm I'm not going to bang on about it anymore but yeah contact us tell me tell me tell me what you think that's the whole thing about having a consultative kind of podcast you tell us god damn you twitter facebook email do the whole thing but now uh, we're going to go to our part uh, part two of our conversation with Nathan Hall. Remember, as always- I thought, I thought that was coming first. No, it's, it's coming after. Oh, right. It's yeah. coming after. It's, All right. It's coming after. Because <laughs> uh, there's going to be a lot of people skipping to minute 35 of this podcast. Yeah. They don't have to hear us. We, listeners, <sighs> but we, we can actually tell. Um, there, there are some stats out there. We, we can see where people are fast forwarding, and um, it, it's good to see that we're not actually we're not actually losing that many people uh, throughout the podcast, which is nice. So thank you, listeners, for actually uh, not dropping off as the uh, as the podcast continues. Now, <laughs> thanks, thanks for not quitting halfway not qu- through, <laughs> like my dad did. But uh, thanks, uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. And uh, now we are going to hear uh, part two of our conversation with Nathan Hall. Now we had a great listener question from uh, from Sam Parsons, who's uh, Sam underscore D underscore Parsons, and and he asked uh, if you could torch one aspect of academia and replace it with something else, what would you burn down and what would you replace it with? Um, big publishing. I I, uh, I thought I, I you were going to go there. <laughs> I I honestly don't see much of the added value provided by big publishers. Um, you know, I like university presses. I, I, it's nice to meet people who work for these smaller uh, publishing houses that actually care and, about the work being published. They charge fees that are a bit more reasonable. And some of these, um, like uh, Calabra is a uh, journal that I'm an editor for, who actually tries to give mm. compensation to, mm. to editors really and reviewers 
for their work and they try not to charge outrageous article processing fees. It's still not as cheap as I think it could be. Uh, but I think big publishers, especially uh, ones that involve sort of gold open access, where the universities are already paying subscriptions to these journals, and then they the, these journals additionally then, or the publishers additionally charge authors specifically to then allow their article to be online. So they're already getting money from the university and, and you know, the universities that are publicly funded, that trickles down to the taxpayer. They're already getting money from the university and the taxpayer, and then they charge the researchers on top of that so that the public can get access. They're, they're double dipping. They're fleecing institutions, which is why a bank, libraries are going bankrupt. Librarians are losing their jobs because of these practices. Uh, our library shut down in our building, for example, they're changing it to some sort of other space and uh, their positions are not being renewed. And it's, it's not fun. And I can see this from their open-ended comments in my own data that I've received from faculty on burnout and stress. Is, it's not fun being a librarian nowadays. Uh, your job is tenuous no. and it's, there's, uh, people don't understand what you do in the 21st century sort of digital age. And with these publishing agreements, they are crippling the budgets that universities have. Um, so I, I, I honestly don't understand the added value, aside from copy editing, putting your name in a different font and sorting your words into columns that make you feel good when you put it in a PDF form or you zoom in and your word and your name is still at perfect resolution. That feeling, I save my documents as PDFs to feel more accomplished because there is some degree of sensory fulfillment <laughs> from seeing a document as a PDF, right? I don't know. Well, you're just describing the difference between uh, uh, vector vector graphics and normal graphics. It's type, typological satisfaction. It, it is typographical satisfaction. It, there's something to be said for changing a font. When I changed the font for my CV after I had it the same way for 15 years, it was, a, it was an emotional deal. I went through for a few hours trying to pick the night, and I put it on Twitter, and other people like, oh, you know, slow clap for you. So. Um, <laughs> font is a big deal. Copy editing is a big deal, right? You see your name and your affiliation under your name, you know, centered in these APA formats. And there's the logo with the tree with Elsevier. And it feels, it feels done, finished. There's a brand. It's a, it's a visual aesthetic of accomplishment. And if you don't have an article that looks that way, it's a preprint with just times, uh, you know, New Roman font, 12 point double spacing. It looks unfinished. That's what student papers look like. Academics papers are smaller font and columns. And um, you know, have appendices. So uh, there's some sort of basic old school um, prestige cue oriented contribution that these publishers give with uh, putting stuff into print, but uh, without the hard copy in your hands, it loses it a bit, right? Hard copies uh, going away. Now it's all online. And with the open access and, and these, uh, you know, there's other ways of formatting documents sort of um, automatically that, uh, you know, ACM does this, I think. Uh, where you format your own document as, as per the uh, protocols of the, I, I think it's academic computing. Uh, they, they, you, you, you don't um, necessarily have the publishers copy editing and formatting your work for publication. It's published as a proceeding. Everyone prepares their stuff the same way. So aside from copy editing, what they, they don't do promotion, yeah. right? They don't promote your stuff. Engineering journals. What do they offer aside from taking money? The editor is working for almost pennies on the dollar for them almost for free. The authors are submitting stuff for free. The reviewers are working for free. And the reviewers are often not even faculty, but postdocs and grad mm. students who are just trying to get in the game. It's a whole lot of people it's, working for free. It's, it's a prestige thing because now, now we're at the point where we can easily format our documents to make them look nice and pretty, LaTeX or whatever you want to use. Um, sure. And uh, as soon as the prestige gets stripped away from these journals, then the whole thing will fall over. And um, I don't know whether it's a case of do we just post everything as preprints? Of, of course, we need some sort of some form of peer review. 
Um, but uh, sure. as soon as the, the prestige goes away and we're not chasing after impact factors and papers are, are just um, assessed on their own merits, um, then I don't think these things matter anymore. But then you actually have to have people read the papers and assess them on their merits. So academics are busy. We can't afford the time for that, right? Mm. That was sarcasm. Oh, the- sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> Sarcasm. Right. I'll, I'll give you. I had a, a, a conversation recently with. Uh, I won't. I won't tell you who. Uh, it was. Uh, it was someone in an in an industry position where they have to read papers very seriously and turn the insights from papers into knowledge that they can use to do their jobs, and it has to work. They're seriously concerned with whether or not what's being described in the science that they're reading is immediately applicable to problems that they're trying to solve. And they trust big box journals less. They deliberately, they deliberately go for kind of middle tier society run, more likely to have specialty or hard subject areas, more likely to have been reviewed by uh, people who have very serious individual backgrounds in that, and they're borderline unconcerned with the size of the paper and actively more likely to distrust the big, long, poorly collected narrative, allegedly important nature of the super fancy journal. Yeah. Which led me to the conclusion that the the way that this has happened, the the, the, the fact that the... Super, super big box paper is the way it is, is, is something that is, it's, it's some kind of odd evolutionary kludge over time <laughs> to add more factors of making something look more impressive as you do it. You know, you've done seven experiments and most of them are somewhat related and some of them are a bit dodgied up. If you have the resources to add two more and write the great big fucking manuscript on the topic in the first instance, there's been some kind of growth sure. in how you can represent an idea is important and that's got to such an extent that the people who are only paid and paid a very large amount of money i might add on whether or not the ideas that they can draw from the literature fucking work not if they can be published but if they can actually work because they're being commercialized or turned into ip and the ip is being sold it's big serious business done by very very clever people they don't trust the fancy journals, the way they trust the uh, the journals for the little people. That's a fucking sad indictment on here's your most important thing. Right. Oh, it's my dream one day to publish something that's less reliable than this other journal. The, the, and why even open your fucking mouth? God damn. So I sent a tweet a few days ago asking people what they would tell their younger selves, uh, you know, about academia. I never actually answered that question myself. Because uh, I, I was more curious what everyone else had to say, but actually someone wrote something similar to that, which deals with the psychology sort of replication uh, crisis, which is now spilling over into various other, other fields. Uh, you know, power posing, I know, James, is probably something you have uh, something to say about that. But, you know, certain, mm. certain things that, that can't be replicated, right? Um, and it extends so far that you are going back to experiments by Zimbardo and other people that are in textbooks that maybe now should not be. So people are now questioning their whole undergraduate training, the stuff they learned in their psychology classes, the, the books that they were forced to buy and read and the papers they were, and to the point where someone actually replied back to this tweet saying, if I could tell my younger self one thing, I would basically tell myself that over half 
of the research that is published is false in my field. Meaning that you don't know what to believe. And now you actually, like there's so much regret and anger about being misled um, and having based your own research, trying to replicate things that should never have been published in the first place, uh, that people I think now have, even academics, have a deep-seated mistrust of published research uh, to the point where, yes, I do think action research is almost being given more credibility than uh, publications in high-impact factor journals. Uh, I try regularly to, to ridicule the fact that people place uh, you know, their prestige stock in, in impact factors. Friends don't let friends believe in impact factors, for example. I will say that, and some people will be like, well, uh, what's an impact factor? Because they don't know about these yet. And others are like, that, that's not cool. Uh, how else are we supposed to evaluate papers? And then other people are like, read the fucking paper. Then that starts <laughs> off a, a whole other uh, you know, Twitter dialogue that I don't tend to jump into. And others are like, yeah, I, you know, I sort of, I thought it would make my career to publish in this kind of thing. I was always told to do this. And, and it still works that way, for example, to get grants and things, because it trickles down, you know, to get tenure, you need these things. And maybe these committees change over time. But uh, to get tenure, you need grants and the grant committees, they still look like there's still committees at higher levels institutionally within academia that look at these things and take them seriously. But if you can start at the grassroots and convince grad students that these things are laughable, they're not as serious as everyone says. Publishing in Science, Cell, Nature, uh, Friends Don't Let Friends have journal titles as uh, career goals, right? It's a little thing like, oh, I, I want to publish in science. Now, when you hear someone say that, you smile a little bit. And I, I'm, I would like to think I had something to do with that because in your mind, you're thinking, oh, it sounds like a joke I heard on Twitter. You are actually making a joke. <laughs> this is actually shit academics say. This, is, this can be funny. Why is this funny? Because there's more to life than a journal title. Don't you care about impact, meaning? And it, it raises other questions. So um, the publishing industry, I think, is, is something that needs to be dramatically reformed. Uh, you, I think it, it's like politics. You need to take the money out of it to try and get some truth in it. Um, I think associations, professional associations should take over. Academics should start their own journals. There's a platform in the province of Quebec here called Erudite where faculty can sign up. Um, uh, and, and make their own journal. There's a platform that ready-made to help you make your own journal. To uh, I mean, there's a couple now. That's that's that is there's such a lot, right? that is such a good that is such a good resource. If it's one of the, yeah. that has been on my mind in a variety of contexts for ages. I'm just not in the position to be able to do it. There's yet. university presses. There's associations. Like, what if peer reviewing was made actually part of your job? I realize now it's not part of my job, so I don't do it unless I really want to. I am not required as a professor to do peer review at all. I'm, re I'm required to contribute to my discipline and to the field, which I can actually justify, you know, my online stuff as service. I actually can't do that to a great extent. But uh, basically me ripping publishers is just as much of a service if I write blogs about it and share and give talks on it as me performing peer reviews for publishers. So I choose to do the former and not the latter as much. But um, yeah, I think, I think the publishing industry needs to be reformed a bit. Either university presses take over and universities can require their staff to do peer reviews for them because they're the publisher. It's part of your job, it's part of your salary, they're, you're actually getting paid. You put it in as time served, right? Time, uh, you stamp your timesheet and that's, it, you're, that's part of your job. Or associations, right? Association, uh, if you still wanna keep it at a volunteer level, I trust journals that are put out by associations. Uh, for example, Collabra now is uh, professionally endorsed by SIP, Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. I was on Collabra before they made it cool. I just put that up there, but um, uh, it's it's nice. <laughs> People trust it more when there's an association mm. 
attached to it that is not necessarily the most profitable, profit-oriented kind of thing. And you can tell this by attending their conferences, right? They don't always put out a food food tray or whatever. They're, they're not money-making things to the extent that publishers are. And you trust them a bit more, almost because they're not in it for the money. Uh, but when there's money attached, I think it compromises scientific integrity, or at least makes it, it clouds the waters. And you'd rather, um, I, I think people would rather read research where there aren't these confounding factors causing them to doubt what they're looking at. Uh, if if it's people starting their own journals, associations, universities, or I, I honestly don't even know what journals are useful for anymore. Uh, maybe why don't people just publish preprints and journals bid on them like art collectors, like art galleries? They don't write their own stuff either, right? They don't they don't make their own yeah. art? Why don't you have journals and editors yeah. bid and then have if you really believe that these collections are worthwhile? Let's see if people will actually pay to see these collections. Yeah, I, I proposed I proposed an idea like that. We had a, a little uh, open science-y sort of day thing a while back. It was at MIT and everyone split into groups. And that's essentially what we came up with. And the idea how you're going to change this, the, the, the fact that you have a, it's, it's a, it's essentially a marketplace. Yes. That exists, that, the, that, it, that exists where you have, um, you, you have things that are kind of, uh, blind auctioned as far as interest is concerned and the way that someone who's going to take your paper off your hands maybe not even necessarily money but in terms of here's here's the people that that our our reputation for getting you a proper review and having a decent look at this is is how uh is how we plan on assuring you that we know what the hell we're doing and i because i definitely do that i have often sent things before to specific journal because i know the review is good yes that's been that's been foremost on my mind or because i know that it's a the the the, the PJ effort recently yeah, yeah, this yeah. is i've i've had i've done PJ reviews so i've seen into the i've seen into the, the the guts of what happens in the review process and it's a little bit like plus reviews um they were really the the whole focus of the thing was we're going to keep this paper. It's like if this paper can be saved, it will be saved. Okay. And here's all the things that we think you have to do. Here's some of the things that you we sh- we'd like you to do. And then uh, there's a few things that we're really concerned about. See if you can address all of that in order. But our mutual goal here is keeping this intact mm-hmm. in the way that you've given it to mm-hmm. us. Now, if someone says we're going to take your journal, we're going to take your journal article explicitly and do that. Then, yeah, shit. Who's gonna have and who's gonna have a, a better, you know, who's gonna have a better idea of that than the editor? So I, I think I would burn down big publishers, basically, to answer the question. Um, and and yeah, I think there was a question I, I think there, the, wasn't there? I think the house neighboring that uh, involving journals themselves as a construct would probably burn down as well in the process. But um, I, I I don't know the solution to this. I don't know if it's editors and journals bidding on papers. Uh, because I don't know who would pay for that when everything now is sort of free. So they're right now they're charging universities, taxpayers, and authors, uh, almost punishing you for getting a manuscript accepted, right? You get a paper in Frontiers, it's $3,000 Canadian. I ran out of money this year with my grant because we have three papers in, in Frontiers. But trying to figure out what is a predatory journal, what's not, and there's, mm-hmm. these are all questions people are freaking out about. I'm trying to look at that as well, motivation and emotions concerning open science. And it freaks people out to share their data or... or to realize they may be contributing to this um, machine of papers that people don't trust. Um, but but where do you go yeah. from there? For me, it's it's the reviews. 
I submit to a journal like Frontiers or Plus One or, or whatever, and my assessment as to the quality of the journal is based almost entirely on the quality of the review that I get. If I'm rejected soundly, sent out on my ass and sent somewhere else for good reason, I, you know, do the slow clap and walk away to another, you know, lesser place. That getting rejected by a good peer review gives me confidence that this is a place that I want to come back and try and publish in someday with better stuff. Maybe it's me trying to please my father, some Freudian thing, but um, you, you know, when, when you're turned down for good reason, or, or there's something you, you, you want to prove something, right? The peer review quality for me is a hallmark of a good journal. People usually send their papers to good journals just to get good feedback and they know they're going to be rejected. Part of that is a little bit questionable now that, you know, you're asking experts to review your stuff for free, knowing that you're wasting their time mm -hmm. and that the journal will never publish them. Uh, but they may be getting paid because they're tenured and so maybe it's fine, it's justifiable. But if the quality of a journal is being based on the quality of the reviewers and the editor, and, and these people are not employees of the journal, these are colleagues. I often recommend the reviewers for my own papers when you submit a paper who, you know, who are potential reviewers. It's, it's hardly ever blind. I know who's reviewing this stuff. And even for Frontiers or whatever, you see their names afterwards. It's not really blind anymore. It's colleagues helping colleagues, people pushing each other and raising each other's, you know, the, the bar for each other. Uh, to push things forward because they actually care. If this is what makes journals good, and it doesn't actually involve the journals, why do we need the journals, right? If this is what makes uh, publishers reputable, why do we need the publishers? If we can find copy editing software, if we can find, uh, you know, c develop connections with, like by, you know, what do you call it, sort of Bitcoin, peer-to-peer uh, -peer compensation for you review my paper, I'll review yours, and we have some sort of, uh, academic coin sharing between us where you, I have two credits now that you can that that I, I get and I can cash in because I reviewed for you and I can you know uh, I can uh, I, I don't know if, if there's some other way of academics compensating other academics for the free work we're otherwise performing for each other that other people are taking advantage of I'm all for that hmm. but I, do, I don't know what the best solution is I don't know if publishing itself uh, should be abandoned in that way should we all just blog Right? Should anyone who's publicly funded just produce publicly accessible documents and reports and forget, you know, and have post-publication reviews, just have comment sections, don't have, you know, whatever. And all the comments have to be from registered uh, academics. So, uh, you know, what like they do on uh, the Chronicle or, or whatever, so you don't have a bunch of external people comment. You have to have some credibility to comment. Is it post-publication review? I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, but that whole publishing thing to me seems outdated, uh, old school and so full of prestige cues that the only thing I can see that makes me feel good about it is the font. It's the PDF. It's that Elsevier tree logo that makes me feel like I'm, I've made it. That it's a, it's like a star in track and field in, in uh, elementary school. It, it's a star. It doesn't mean anything, but it's shiny and you show other people and, and you feel good about it, right? And it eventually goes in the garbage and you never, you know, but it's, there's, it's, it almost comes down to these really ridiculous prestige cues. Impact factors, single digit numbers, university rankings is another thing that I, you know, McGill are always so focused on being number one, right? And I've just, I, just published, I just published on how these university rankings are actually correlated with depression, right? These are not, these oh, are not wow. innocuous prestige indicators. University rankings, impact factors. These have 
These all have implications for people's jobs, their careers, and their psychological health. There is a cost, and there are side effects to these things. There are implications for people, you know. But so when someone says you need an impact factor of 2.0 or higher to get tenure, uh, it's I have to smile now because there's so much else attached to it that just believing in the, you know, you might as well just say you need it in a Calibri font as opposed to, it's like, and someone uh, talks about the, what a Comic Sans, right? Comic Sans is an academic joke. You just put Comic Sans and that's just, that's going to take off because it's, it's not academic, right? Why is Comic Sans funny? Because it's not an academic font. Who said this not an academic font? Did, didn't they release it's, the, it's um, the results from CERN in, in Comic Sans? I'm sorry? Do you remember that there was those um the, the the first results from the from the CERN experiments and they, they they came up and they were like the whole media was watching and the first slide was was a blue slide with yellow comic sans and the whole and yeah. everyone was like what are they doing but maybe it was just a bit of a bit of an in joke there I don't know I think so it it's to the point like it sounds funny right font academic work um but I, I, when you think about the rest of academic life and the stuff we do for free it's not. It is funny. It, it, it comes, it, if that's funny, what else is funny, right? Yeah. That, um, anyways, I, I, I don't know. I find taking the humor in things to be necessary and almost sometimes inevitable, you know, uh, not just even as a coping strategy, but, but a way of like just connecting with people and starting bigger conversations. So if you're laughing about the oddities of academic work and the, the weird things we say to each other and, you know, the, 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 completely lame dad type jokes like I concur. I'm sure every academic who's got the doctor title at some point has said I concur as if they were a real doctor. Or I uh, use the joke like, yes, I'm, an ac- I'm a doctor, but not the kind that helps people. Like these are all such old jokes that everyone says to each other at some point to just connect and just bond over the fact that we're in this weird profession that we know is weird, but some of these things you can't put in quite into words because you've actually personally invested much of your life in a lot of these endeavors that now you realize have had other consequences that you don't want to be completely you don't want to know all the how you've contributed to the you know how the sausage is made sometimes you just want to change it and move forward in a different direction but people connect i think academics connect on humor uh, faculty use humor all the time i write my jokes into my lectures i use the same jokes every year you know they're even on my slides i sometimes when i actually save my them, TV, what worked uh, didn't work no, I, I just, I'm, I'm a bit lazy. I just say the same things, but it's new to them, right? But jokes and humor are not unoriginal. XKCD has been around a long time. Uh, you know, PhD comics, uh, there's other sort of more philo- philosophical ones, existential comics, Nine Quarterly, and, and other people who, who make uh, light of a lot of these things. And I, I just try to do my part to make light of the weird stuff that is in academia in order to start conversations about the bigger things that might need to be changed and I think part of it is, is I don't have the solutions, but chances are some grad student or postdoc listening to me or reading one of these things that I've shared or remembering a tweet that I mentioned might react differently in a meeting or uh, when they become an editor, uh, when something is submitted and trying to do certain things or, or whatever, make certain arguments that now seem kind of funny and they can't remember why, right? Or a conversation that now feels awkward and you don't quite can't put your finger on uh, the reason for that. I, I wanna contribute to that kind of awkwardness in prestige-oriented conversations where you now have to start talking about something more meaningful. Who are you helping? How's your stuff useful? Are you actually having your students get jobs? Are you training people for things that are meaningful? Um, are you connecting with students? Are you publishing things in a way that actually uh, makes publishing worth it? Or should you just be talking to people 
you know, those conversations seem basic. They're what other people maybe talk about outside of academia. But I think in academia, thinking about what's applicable, what's useful, mm. what's a real, like in James, you were talking about how people who want to use research uh, are now avoiding these journals. That whole description of wanting to use it and apply it and that, that, that whole fucking crazy, that whole meeting it? conversation to me is com almost completely absent from many conversations I have with colleagues. Like the idea that someone actually want to use what you publish is sometimes uh, uh, not even an afterthought, but a, uh, it's not a consideration. The implication sections of a lot of these papers are devoid of meaning. It's just, you know, it's boilerplate stuff. Yeah, it's that's, that's all, very yeah. that's very hard for a lot of people. But, um, yeah, look, the, the, the further you get into the biological sciences, the more you start to the more you start to realize that you've got, I mean, you, you can't, you can't do research on a Parkinsonian syndrome and then go, Oh, well, at least we got the paper published and it's a pile of loosely connected ideas that just sort of fuck in an alleyway rather than a, a, a paper with a demonstrable outcome yeah. or a, a result that's centrally reliable. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see how that makes the transition into an industry where people only care about the immediate accuracy and utility of the ideas in front of them. And they do not give a fuck where it's published. They don't. They're chasing down whether or not their kind of research hypothesis uh, of interest is a research hypothesis that they can access. Or, um, for example, in educational psychology, there's still this belief in learning styles, which has been debunked repeatedly, oh. um, where practitioners... That's my learning styles noise. Did you like that one? <laughs> it, it's a thing, right? The, pre the, the learning styles adoption, it's in learning apps, Edmodo, for example, they have a learning styles section in that app for kids that's used by tens of thousands of people internationally. Uh, it's adopted in schools as ways to train teachers in that. The science behind it is questionable at best, uh, but it's not based on research. It's almost like there's an active avoidance of actual research on these things because they don't trust it anymore. Why? Well, in my field in psychology, what have you, uh, there people are being criticized as sort of more focused on reinventing the wheel, having their name attached to a certain name of a construct like grit or resilience or mindfulness, doing TED Talks on these things, um, and sort of talking about things they don't know, like Jordan Peterson or, or what have you. He's Canadian, so that's a personal uh, blight on our country and personal shame. <laughs> I think we've managed to yes. avoid having him even mentioned on the, the podcast time. so far, haven't we? Yeah. Done? Well, there's a, yes, there was one question I think that was posed by what academic would you most revere for going rogue, I think was another uh, question on Twitter. Mm. Uh, I, I would sort of twist it as which academic are you most ashamed of for going rogue? And that would be that. But the, the, the idea that <laughs> academics and psychology even are more focused on celebrity and uh, audiences and um, hype than uh, producing things that are useful, reinventing constructs and calling them different things, the jingle jangle sort of uh, fallacy or what have you. I, I, this is alienating people who could actually use our research, right? Calling old constructs new things, old wine, new bottles, whatever. Mm. Uh, people have stopped caring and they've latched on to uh, whatever seems intuitive uh, because you can't trust necessarily what's published. And I think publishers have. Uh, some responsibility for that I, but i think researchers do too because a lot of researchers at least in my field are more interested in constructs that uh, titillate their own intellectual curiosity like cognitive load uh, than trying to figure out if this is actually something useful for people uh, is it something practical and i i, I attend these talks and i hear the and, and there, i don't hear this aspect 
of the conversation. And I'm so I've actually shifted my focus from being on social media to things that actually uh, that that the target audiences care about. So instead of uh, you know learning and achievement in undergrads, I focus now on burnout and depression in grad students. I'm not looking at their productivity. Mm. I'm not looking at their grades or their performance and. And I have colleagues still that look at faculty in terms of their productivity, success, the altmetric indicators. That's great. Um, you know, you really want to squeeze more out of your faculty, but not, you know, crush them in the process. You want to support them so that you can have more successful uh, institutions contributing more to society. But people are burning out. What about your work-life balance? What about the fact that your wife is not happy with you? That mm, is a real like thing that. that you don't feel yeah. like you're a good parent. And this is a cost to you because you want to publish that next paper. Or you need to write a grant that your dean is... Uh, requesting strongly that you do, even though you don't need it, right? Because you have it's, to demonstrate fundability within your department or what have you. So there are costs associated with a lot of these things that I, if there's anything that I could actually go back and tell my former academic self, that's probably what I would say is there's a lot of costs to pursuing these prestige oriented markers that I did for years. I tried to stack publications. I tried to work with people who had, uh, you know, collaborations and connections I could use. I would research journals and editorial boards and do that whole strategizing thing and cite them to get in their journals and, and, and just play that whole game. But there's a cost, right? You end up publishing things you're not proud of. You end up getting tenure and figuring, trying to figure out what you're trying to do with the rest of your career because it's, you've just been focused on getting tenure. Uh, there, there are actual you know, costs associated with pursuing traditional academic, stereotypical, prestige-oriented goals um, where it's not even just your own personal costs associated with that. There's people who are supporting you Right. Mm. My wife has made sacrifices for me to uh, pursue a career at a top ranked institution where we have no family, no support, no friends, no, no social. You know, it's been hard to try and settle in here and for her to work in a francophone community. It's 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 not easy. Mm. Even moving to the U.S. for a postdoc, she couldn't work. Right. So we had we started to have kids instead. <laughs> you know, there's there, things there are, you can do when you there are so many things in the background that are, that are kind of happening with that and you have to consider. Now, yeah. before we, before we finish up, we we we'd like to ask our guests some some questions. I think you've already answered the first one, which sure. is what you've changed your mind about recently. So we'll just jump to the second one, which is uh, what's one book or paper that you would recommend our listeners should read? Oh, I'm gonna have to disappoint you on this one. I I don't read for fun. Um, I hardly read books at all. <laughs> um, I, I I would probably not recommend a book or an article. Uh, I would probably just have. A lot of people go on Twitter and just want to post stuff. I would go on Twitter, find a hashtag like PhD chat or ECR chat or adjunct life or adjunct and just read. Just read the experiences that people are posting and learn. I, I grew up, uh, you know, middle class sort of white male. You end up in a sort of a privileged uh, cocoon where you don't hear a lot of these stories, right? I was even further raised religious, mm. so I didn't have a lot of the secular uh, I didn't listen to secular music until I was like in high school, right? So, I, 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 secular yeah. music. I've never even heard music called secular yeah, music. Yeah, most people it's just referred to as music, right? But um, oh, you would have you would have hated some of the bands I, I grew started up off on Milli Vanilli, so I think I had a pretty rough start. I had a lot of work to do, but so for me, I'm, I was in a wow, cocoon. It's a long way from Milli Vanilli to Nunslaughter, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I would assume so. <laughs> I, I, have to, I, have not, yes. I have to Google that before I agree or not. <laughs> but I, I grew up not knowing a lot of things outside my own religious culture. For me, university was a learning experience. I learned about other religions and changed my, uh, you know, my own faith beliefs and all of that. And then getting into academia as a fact, I changed the way I thought about academia. And then I got on social media and I 
I, it changed the way I thought about it again. Because once you see how the sausage is made, that's one thing about how publications work and how to play the game. That's one set of skills to learn. How to get published, how to get grants, how to graduate students, how to how to navigate in, internal politics and to know where careers typically lead into administrative, associate dean, dean, you know, VP kind of stuff. Mm. Or uh, what you have to mm. do to protect yourself for course releases and strategies and how you get in good with. I learned that. But what I learned on social media was about the experiences of other people. Females in academia, it's mind-blowing, the stuff that people report that happens at conferences or being talked over in department meetings. I've never experienced anything like that. And the only way I learned about them was from reading the words right from the people's mouths on social media. Uh, minority scholars, female scholars, postdocs, the anxiety about training for years for jobs that evaporate while you are in a postdoc. Like in the last few years, these jobs, tenure-track jobs have gone down the toilet to the point where you are in a program and the ground just drops from underneath your feet. To hear people say that in their own words, to hear people put out there that they don't think they are a good parent, they can't spend as much time with their kids because of the time they need to spend grading papers or trying to apply for jobs. Or, uh, it, it's heartbreaking, but it's also very enlightening about whether or not I'm actually doing everything I can in my own social media presence or my own research to address a lot of these issues. So. I, I don't I don't get that from a book to be honest or a manuscript because those things take years to show up unless it's frontiers you pay three grand and it shows up in six weeks but um, you learn about people's lives from hearing them talk about it themselves so I, I would recommend going on social media as I did initially just for two or three months don't say anything if you want to start a social media Twitter account great but don't go on there talking maybe introduce yourself ask for help ask for feedback and then listen read study see what people are saying how they're saying it you learn about social media norms and what's funny what's not but you also hear about their own uh their own lives in a way you'd never see it otherwise it's it's uh an open window into people's experiences that can be very insightful as to where to go from there so i, I wouldn't recommend a book or paper i would just recommend reading reading twitter nathan hall yeah thanks for joining us on the show today hey you bet anytime <laughs>